Conversations from the heart unravels big and small ideas, developments, and breakthroughs in cardiology. From vital issues such as how to prevent cardiovascular disease to the latest in treatment and care for the millions of people affected by it, we take our listeners on an exploration journey. A journey towards stronger health systems and healthier hearts. Brought to you by the World Heart Federation and presented by Pablo Perel and Boriana Pervan, the podcast will feature conversations with practitioners, authors of key publications and discoveries, and people passionate about heart health. From our heart to yours, thank you for letting us in. Cardiovascular disease is a global problem, the biggest problem globally, with over 80% occurring in low and middle income countries. It only made sense to tackle it on a global scale, or at least try to make an impact on a global scale. I was conscious of the fact that I needed to give back to the developing countries. And so throughout the period I was in Oxford, subsequently at the NIH and then at McMaster, I had this idea of trying to give back to the world. For our first episode, we have the pleasure to speak with Professor Salim Yusuf, a renowned cardiologist, past president of WHF, distinguished professor of medicine at McMaster University and executive director of the Population Health Research Institute. For the last 40 years, his research has been key to improving treatment and prevention of cardiovascular disease globally. Professor Yusuf, welcome to our show. We are absolutely delighted that you are our first guest. And just as starters, as a cardiologist who has been much involved in the prevention globally, can you share with us what brought you to doing prevention? And is there a story behind it that you would like to share with us? Well, there's always a story to everybody's tale. And as many people know, I was born and brought up in India did my medical schooling in Bangalore at St. John's Medical College, which is a wonderful experience. And then was fortunate to receive a Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford. And there I worked with some really tremendous people who brought in my focus. And the two people who had the biggest impact on my thinking was the late Professor Peter Slight, who passed away recently, and Sir Richard Pito, who is a statistician, probably one of the world's most eminent epidemiologists. And we started the first large international mega trials, the ISIS trials, which tested beta blockers, showed its benefit, then tested aspirin and thrombolytic therapy, and it showed its benefit. But more important than the benefits that we showed was the fact that we brought together thousands of people around the world to work together on common problems. And we designed studies that were simple, large, low cost and impactful. But equally, we engaged people from non-academic centers and from non-Western countries in our work. And Richard Peter always told me, you know, always assess the disease burden. What are the commonest problems? And then try to tackle the commonest problems. And given that cardiovascular disease is a global problem, the biggest problem globally, with over 80% occurring in low and middle income countries, it only made sense to tackle it on a global scale, or at least try to make an impact on a global scale. Most scientists and researchers were focused on the disease as it happens in their country, and that's understandable. But I was interested in broadening it. 
another part of it is with my roots in India, I was conscious of the fact that I needed to give back to the developing countries. And so throughout the period I was in Oxford, subsequently at the NIH and then at McMaster, I had this idea of trying to give back to the world. So increasingly my research was not just heart disease and stroke in Western countries, but also in every geographic continent of the world, inhabited continent of the world, and in low-income and middle-income countries, neglected populations, and also sometimes neglected heart diseases like TB or the heart, or Chagas disease, or now rheumatic heart disease. So that's been my perspective. And in fact, if we have to reduce cardiovascular disease globally, we must have a strategy that is applicable not just to the high-income countries, but also to the middle-income and low-income countries. So that's been the theme of my work over the last four decades. And at this stage of my life, I do have the flexibility, the knowledge, the connections to try to have fun on the global stage. And the World Heart Federation presidency was one more important step in that progression or in that journey. Thank you for talking about global stage and global impact. We are talking to you today also because you have recently authored another landmark paper on this active polypill. So the question would be, maybe you can explain to our listeners what is polypill and what inspired your specific interest in it. There is no single polypill. Polypill is a concept. It's like saying blood pressure lowering and cholesterol lowering. You can have different ways of achieving it. But what the polypill is based on is the fact that some simple low-cost treatments each reduce cardiovascular disease and mortality, or several of them do, by a fifth or a quarter or a sixth. But by putting them together, you could get a larger effect. But more important than that was the fact that people often do not give patients or in prevention, multiple approaches or multiple pharmacological approaches to reduce risk. So the polypill is really a combination of two or more blood pressure lowering agents. It could be any, a statin to lower cholesterol and with or without aspirin, depending on the clinical circumstances. That's what a polypill is. My interest in the polypill thing happened well before the word polypill was coined. Around 2002, I wrote an editorial in The Lancet after the heart protection study came out talking about combination therapy with a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, a statin, an aspirin in people with vascular disease. And I projected, it was a theoretical calculation, that this should lead to about a 60 to 70% reduction in future cardiovascular disease risk. In a much more elegant and detailed paper, Wald and Law, about a year later, published a polypill concept, which actually was three blood pressure lowering agents at half doses, a statin, aspirin, and perhaps homocysteine lowering of folate and B6. It was a concept. There wasn't a pill at that time. They claimed that you could get an 80 to 90% reduction in stroke and heart attacks based on the calculations. Now, this intrigued many people around the world. This is like penicillin for the heart. But nobody had actually formulated a polypill. Nobody knew 
whether a polypill would give you the same effects of each agent given separately and then combined. And the boldest step that Walden Law did was to say, well, we need to give it in primary prevention. We need to give it without measuring any risk factors. We give it to everybody over the age of 50 or 55. That actually was the most controversial part of the concept. And I think they were right, but that's the part that met with the greatest resistance from people. And even today, that's the part that people will resist. So we took a slightly different approach. We said, well, let's first formulate a polypill. So we worked with a company in India called Cadilla to develop a capsule with generic substances with three blood pressure lowering agents. We had to use drugs that were generic then. Okay, since then, this is going back to around 2005, 2006. So, you know, amlodipine was not off patent. The only statin off patent was simvastatin. And the only beta blocker off patent at that stage was atenolol, a once a day drug. So we were restricted in what we could work with. But we formulated it and we showed that you did get a reduction in risk factors, that's blood pressure, heart rate, and lipids to the same extent, mostly if you gave it separately, not exactly, but mostly. Then we tried a full dose of it. The first one was half dose to see if it is tolerated and whether you got an incremental benefit. You got about a 10% incremental benefit and it was well tolerated. Then we were fortunate to get funded by the Wellcome Trust to do a large trial, the polypill trial. But in parallel, we did the HOPE-3 trial where we tested the concept of a statin versus no statin and combination of two blood pressure lowering agents together. And on the third side, we did the HOPE-4 study to look at delivery, implementation of the of using combination therapy by non-physician health workers in the community. So these three studies, the TIP study with a polypill, a formal polypill study with or without aspirin, the HOPE-3 study looking at the effects of blood pressure lowering and statins in a factorial design. So a quarter would get both. And then the HOPE-4 study, which is implementation strategy project in the community, we're all done together. So we've got to view all three together. So although the polypill study results came out just a few weeks ago, the other two have been published before in 2017 and in 2019. So where do we stand? We think that a polypill will reduce cardiovascular disease, okay? We think it won't reduce it by 80 or 90% but it could well reduce it by 40%, okay? Now, 40% reduction of cardiovascular disease is huge, you know, because when you think of the fact that 18 million deaths in the world are cardiovascular disease, and about two to three times that number of people have non-fatal events, and since 80% of cardiovascular events occur in people without prior cardiovascular disease, primary prevention is important. Sorry to interrupt you because we are very interested and we're going to come back to the impact and potential impact of the polypill. Right. And it's amazing because you were saying, I mean, it's next year, it's going to be the 20th anniversary of you working on the polypill. I mean, we should celebrate that. But I think it would be good to summarize for the audience the latest of all your research on the polypill, the one that was published a few weeks ago in the New England and I guess most of the audience will know about it, but I think it would be useful if you can just briefly summarize this okay. 
study, I mean, what was about and the main results. And then Thank I think we are very interested to talk about the, the potential impact and next steps. Thank you, Pablo. So what we did is we took about 5,700 people were included in the study from about eight countries. There were people who did not have previous vascular disease, but they needed to have at least one risk factor. And they were randomized to receive the polycap or the polypill, which was three blood pressure lowering agents and statin versus placebo. But because we didn't know the role of aspirin in primary prevention, we decided rather than including it in the polypill to factor it in and re-randomize people. So a quarter of the people got both polycap plus an aspirin, a quarter got polycap alone, a quarter got aspirin alone, and a quarter got neither. Now, the results were that the polycap alone reduced risk by 20%, aspirin by about 15%, and the two together by about 30%. But there was a challenge we had in that because of delays in drug supply and because of the COVID pandemic, a substantially higher proportion of people stop their medication for administrative reasons, not for side effects. So we had projected 20% would stop normally, but actually it ended up being 40% because of unexpected circumstances. So what we had pre-specified an analysis where we'd, if somebody stopped medication for administrative reasons, we wouldn't count events 30 days after that. As it turned out, the number of events were exactly the same after that 30-day cutoff point. When we focus then on the group that were taking the medicines or within 30 days of stopping, the benefit with the polycap was 30% and the benefit with aspirin was again 15% and the two together was a 40% treatment benefit. Now that's where the 40% number comes from. So people who take it, that's where it comes from. Now, having said that, there was one other unexpected finding. We found that the effect size on the risk factors was about half of what we predicted on LDL and about 60% of what we predicted on blood pressure. We don't fully understand this, and we are trying to understand whether it is patient compliance, but it doesn't seem to be the case. That is beyond the administrative sensory, or whether there is a problem with stability of the drug formulation or whether there is a problem with the body getting used to the drugs and therefore, you know, there's an accommodation effect. Anyway, we divided the centers because within centers, people are randomized. So it's an unbiased comparison. Centers with the top third of risk factor change, the middle third of risk factor change and the lowest risk factor change. And in the group with the top third of risk factor change, the combination of the polycap plus aspirin led to a 45 to 50% risk reduction. The middle third was half of that, and in the lowest third was negligible. Yeah, and I think that probably will have, I mean, very important implications in what you were saying at the beginning, Salim, that, I mean, the polypill is a concept. So, I mean, probably it will be updated in terms of the components of the polypill. But if you prove that those achieve those targets in the risk factors, you have that impact. I mean, you can extrapolate that and it will be very important for the future. But one thing that I'm sure you hear a lot, Salim, and I would like to hear your thoughts is some cardiologists from high-income countries might say, well, this, I mean, the polypill is a solution for, for low- and middle-income countries. It's not so relevant for, 
for rich countries. What would be your answer to those comments? First, I'd say, you know, something works, it generally works in everybody, poor or rich. Second thing I'd say is 80% of the world's cardiovascular diseases in low and middle income countries. So even if you bought it, not that I buy that kind of thinking, you know, you're still benefiting 80% of the world. So, you know, okay, that's fine. But there's lots of data from high income countries that people don't use the proven therapies adequately. And this is one more tool in that armamentarium of things that people have access to that they can use to improve outcomes. And there was a very nice paper about a year or two ago, person, I think Munoz was the first author from somewhere in the US, Kentucky or somewhere that showed that in the US too, in socially deprived people, the polypill made a big difference to people's blood pressure control. And if it's going to make it easier and it's cheaper, why wouldn't you use it in the rich countries? Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it's a weird kind of thinking to say we don't need it. Now, the honest answer is in rich countries, most people who will benefit from a polypill are not on all the components. Yeah. So I think that's a spurious argument that people raised. The other argument people said is we need personalized yeah. therapies. The problem is there is no evidence that personalized medicine actually is better than a general approach to treatments. Now, having said that, you do need to personalize it. Somebody has side effects, you don't give it. Somebody has contraindications, you don't use it. But beyond that, any more tailoring has not been shown to be particularly useful. And the polyfield, I mean, does not preclude to take those considerations. You can always consider those. So, I mean, you are a very action man. You want things to happen and to see the impact. You've been working, as we were saying, on the polypill for 20 years now, on prevention for many more years. So what does need to happen now? I mean, after all the very hard research that you and others have done on the polypill to really move this forward, what do you think needs to happen? I think what needs to happen is various strategies to get the high-risk people who've got disease as well as the moderate and high-risk primary prevention people to get them on combination therapy. I'm being very careful with the words I'm using. It doesn't matter to me whether it's a polypill or whether each of the components are given separately. The polypill obviously makes it easier, but if somebody wants to give the components separately or to give two sets of combination therapies, that is fine by me. Both of those approaches will save a lot of lives. So our key goal is to save lives. And the polypill is a delivery system, okay? Now, the polypill alone won't work. You need a healthcare system where this is delivered. You need to identify the people who could potentially benefit from it. Clearly, it's easy to identify the people who've got previous vascular disease. It's easy to identify people who've got high blood pressure. And a very large proportion of people who've got diabetes are easily identified. These three groups are the groups from which 80% of cardiovascular disease occurs in a community. So without excessive efforts at screening, simple efforts can identify the people who benefit the most. And in these people to try to do a delivery system. And we tested that in the hopeful study along with Martin McKee in Colombia and Malaysia, where we randomized 30 communities, about 2000 people using non-physician health workers. And with them using combination therapy, it wasn't exactly a polypill, 
there was two blood pressure lowering agents, statins. In hypertensives, we had a substantial reduction of Framingham risk score and the interheart risk score, as well as blood pressure and LDL, so that that would translate into a 50% reduction in risk. And using the non-physician healthcare workers, we were able to use that as a platform to improve smoking cessation, improve diet, and improve physical activity. So I think the ultimate thing is a comprehensive approach, which is a health systems-based approach. And whether you use a polypill or use the combination therapy separately is only a fine point. Now, where can we all work together? So one is to get this concept across, endorse it. Organizations like the WH and the World Heart Federation, I'm sure will find this concept fits in with their thinking. And to get countries around the world to accept it and put it into their local guidelines. That's the first step. The second thing is to promote the development of newer polypills. Because I think the, you know, it's like the first statins weren't the most effective statins, like lovastatin and some pravastatins hardly used today. And same thing, the first blood pressure lowering agents are not today's blood pressure lowering agents. The same thing, the polypill we tested, you've got to call it MAC1. We need MAC2, MAC3, new versions. So I think future polypills can be more effective with greater LDL lowering, greater blood pressure lowering, and I think their benefits would be greater. So to stimulate companies around the world to invest in developing better polypills, and they'll do it if they can see there will be an uptake. And in order to improve the uptake, we need to influence the national guidelines, and the national guidelines can be influenced by World Heart Federation, WHO, International Society of Hypertension, all these international organizations. So that's the cascade effect I see. And then if the polypill is market available at low cost, it should get onto government formularies and health insurance formularies. And we have estimated that this is cost saving or cost neutral. What's wrong with something that will save a lot of lives and is cost neutral or low cost and simple? I think the polypill is a journey and we are somewhere about 50% into the journey. And in the next 10 years, we can now see the translation into practice. It's great you say the next 10 years. I was going to say that I hope the action will be taken in the next 10 years because that's when I will hit 50 plus. So I hope I'll be able to benefit from a polypill without any problem. I was going to ask you just to throw the ball at us as a global convener of the cardiovascular community. And I think you kind of did just now. Just tell us what is our role specifically, according to you, how we can help with accelerating and making this a reality? I think that the WHF could convene a science-based advocacy forum for effective cardiovascular prevention of their a central core, one of the central pillars is the polypill or combination therapy. Another one is smoking cessation. And the third one is non-physician health workers. So a simple cost-effective science-based approach and to advocate for that. So that the next package of global cardiovascular disease prevention guidelines should be simple, but should take these three or four dimensions together simple identification of the people who benefit, 
using non-physician healthcare workers, low-cost combination therapy, and smoking cessation. Diet, as you know, has gone through so many evolutions in the thinking. Today's thinking is fats may not be the culprit. It may be poor quality carbohydrates may be the real culprit. Salt is not as bad as we thought it was. And so a lot of changes are happening, although fruits and vegetables are very important. But I see this as an integrated approach, not a sequenced approach. Because people in the past have said, let's first do lifestyle change, then let's add drugs. No, no, I think you do everything at the same time. Because, you know, people are dying every day. People are getting heart attacks every day. So why wait six months to see that lifestyle modification by itself has failed before you add things? Because in six months, if you think of it globally, a few million people would have been hurt by delays in implementing pharmacotherapy. And one of the biggest tragedy in the world is we do really have treatments and knowledge to reduce cardiovascular disease by 50% in the next five or 10 years. We have the knowledge, we have the tools, it's low cost. Somehow we haven't found a system to implement it. So I think the World Heart Federation could take a great convening and leadership role, work with its member organizations, work with the WHO, I mean, the WHO is a tremendous organization, but it's got so much to deal with, especially now with COVID. So the World Heart Federation has a central role and the polypill would be one of the tools to use. I'm not saying the only two, one of the tools. Thank you, Professor Yusuf. It is a humbling task and we will definitely need your guidance on the way. Thank you very much for being part of this conversation from the heart. Thank you. I want to thank you, Salim, for sharing your amazing experience and passion and drive that, of course, WHF, we do have. And with your help, we're going to try to move this very important agenda. And I'm very happy to have you as the first guest of these uh, conversations. Again, thank you very much for, for your time and, and knowledge. Well, thank you, Pablo. Thank you, Boriana. Thank you, everybody. As you were saying, Pablo, I've been at this now for close to 20 years, okay? And it seems like a long time. It's a long time for one person, but it's not a long time in the evolution of a disease. If you think of the old idiom or whatever, Rome wasn't built in a day. Mm. What we're trying to do is to change the course of the world's commonest disease burden. And it's not going to happen in a day. 20 years in that frame is not inordinately long. And in the last 50 years, we've reduced cardiovascular disease in rich and middle-income countries a lot, you know, maybe about 40 to 50% in some of them. And many of the lower middle-income countries are starting to see a decline. So I think we're having an impact. And this was all from us at the World Heart Federation. Thank you for being with us for our very first episode. Please send us any suggestions and questions at communications at worldheart.org. And don't forget to subscribe to our Conversations from the Heart podcast. From our heart to yours, goodbye.